0: Welcome to the Hyper Guy Motivational Podcast. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. My guest today is Ray uh, Red Claiborne. The, is it the third now? Am I correct?
1: Yes, yeah, the, <laughs> the third.
0: The third, the um, third. Red is the founder of the Spirit Gallery. He is a, also a professional model. He has his BA in marketing from the University of Houston, and he is a proud Trojan, Trojan who got his MBA from Marshall. He is an entrepreneur, as I mentioned before, and you spent how many years in five years in the corporate world, huh? Give or take?
1: Yeah. yeah, five years.
0: He's an artist, a painter. he's a, a, he a yoga enthusiast and he and he does a million other things which we'll get into. but he's very, very successful, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. Thank you for being on here, red. I appreciate you.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for the invite. thank you for having me. i'm I'm really excited for our conversation today.
0: So Red, let me ask you, um, where were you born and raised?
1: Yeah. So born and raised in Chicago, very different weather. Um, I'm, I live in LA now, obviously, but yeah, I, uh, I definitely got the four seasons out there. So around this time of year, it's, you know, we're getting the snow, we're getting the cold. Um, but yeah, I spent all of my childhood in Chicago before going to undergrad in Texas. So yeah.
0: What was it like growing up in chicago uh what was your childhood like what was it like growing i know i know i always hear about chicago being cold and i always hear about it being rough and what part of chicago did you live in how did how did chicago shape who you are today
1: yeah um i always, you know whenever i'm talking to someone about my experience growing up in chicago i kind of split it into two different um chapters right because when I was born, my parents, they were married, but they each, um, they each had their own home and they, they had homes in like very different neighborhoods. So my dad, um, he lived in Roseland and that was an area that um, stricken with violence and poverty and just lack of resources. My mom had a home in Beverly, which was a more affluent neighborhood, more diverse. And so for the first part of my childhood, I, I was mainly living with my mother And I would kind of go back and forth, you know, to my dad's. But eventually around when I was like 10 or 11, we consolidated. So my mom and I moved in with my father. And so I always joke and tell people I kind of went from being able to like go outside and and meet friends on the block and ride bikes together to, you know, living in a neighborhood where some of the kids on the block might be trying to steal my bike or like jump me or, you know, it was a very uh, different experience. And I also, got to see two ways of life. Right. Um, and so I think growing up in Chicago, you're surrounded by hustle. You're surrounded by people who are trying to, um, make a life for themselves. They, they have people that they're trying to take care of around them too. And so I think that bled into me. Um, and my parents are very like humanitarian. Like my mother was a social worker. My father, uh, he was a firefighter. So I kind of grew up know with an awareness of the need to help others around you um and to do that you know being able to pull yourself up first and like pull as you pull as you go and so yeah i i knew that you know growing up i wanted to experience more than chicago i think that city will always be a part of my story and it you know it it crafted um the the sense of ambition and hustle that i had in me but i knew that that is not where I was going to stop or like be forever. Like I had to break out. and So, you know, that came later obviously, but um, yeah, I I still have so much love for my city. Um, And, you know, the violence and like the the issue with gang violence specifically, like a lot of that is true, right? Um, The media though, is not always um, accurate in how they like depict it, but it is very much so something that you know I was aware of growing up, especially when we moved in with my father. And to the best of his ability, he tried to keep me away from you know the streets and you know hanging with the wrong crowds. But I definitely, you know, we lived in the area where that was like all around us, and so I've seen a lot. Like I, you know, I I've seen a lot of violence, um, and I've also see I've seen people doing things that yeah like are illegal right but it was coming from a survival mindset and it was coming from a desire to take care of their family or you know to get the rent paid that month and so i think as i got older it allowed me to see um, it allowed me to see things through a different lens and be able to look at both perspectives for sure
0: did you have any brothers and sisters or was just you
1: so i so i have a sister um we are 21 years apart and so i'm the youngest and um so i always tell people i i kind of grew up with a brother right because i um she she had a son and my nephew so me and my nephew are only like two and a half years apart he's like he's younger than me so we more so like grew up like siblings because we were so close in age um and yeah we're still super close to this day he's still in chicago but he was kind of like my unofficial sibling growing up because like even introducing him as a kid like oh this is my nephew and he's like right at me with height like it just you know people be like oh okay so your sister must or your you know your sibling must be like a lot older i'm like yeah um but yeah just one sibling
0: and so what was school like for you growing up did you uh, did you like school were you, did you did you excel in sports or or academics
1: I would say primarily academics um, for the first part, like, you know, primary school, going into middle school, I think I, I excelled and it, I don't wanna say came easy, but like, I, I just did well and it didn't feel like a, a struggle. Um, I think I felt a lot of pressure to perform well academically um, from my from my parents. I think it was coming from a good place, but like, as I got older, like into high school and, and undergrad, my relationship to academia changed because it was, the, the courses were more challenging and it was just harder. Like I felt like I had to work harder to actually like, you know, get good grades. And so, especially by the time I got to undergrad, um, I think I was working with the mindset of, I need to get a good GPA so that I could get an internship so that I could get access to a career and be able to survive and, you know, sustain myself. And so I had like a very clear um vision of like what my track was going to be in turn that put like a lot of pressure on me to like to like excel and like do well in school but i would say in the earlier days it came easier to me and i felt like really connected to learning in a in a more positive way but high school and beyond up until MBA, because i was kind of able to reverse that during my nba experience and i know we'll talk about that later but um yeah high school and undergrad was tough Um, Even though I ended up doing well, the process of getting there was just like, it was really tough.
0: So you did well in high school and did you apply to what you end up applying um, out of the state? So what made Mm -hmm. you apply to a university outside of Illinois? And what was your major? What, What did you want to do when you got out of high school? Yeah, so
1: one of the reasons why I chose to uh, leave the state, I really wanted to get out of Chicago, go somewhere far, see somewhere new. Like I had like a very um, adventurous spirit and I wanted to just, you know, throw myself into a new environment, but I also wanted to, I wanted to do that, but still be close to family or, you know, have a sense of community. And so um, I, I have a lot of family members in Texas and on my mom's side specifically. And, I applied. Most of the most of the colleges that I applied to were in Texas because I saw that as a place where I can, like you know, go and get a new experience, new environment, but also, you know, have the ability to call my family for support when needed. And so, I ultimately chose University of Houston because they had a great business program, and I knew at the time that I wanted to pursue business. And they gave me in-state tuition, which you know that's a that's a sell. <laughs> um, and I got a scholarship on top of that. Uh, so i I, w- I also had to think about the financial you know aspect of, of college too and I was lucky enough to have my father's support with with undergrad um, but you know the other schools like Baylor for example, was the one that, like also on my list, but that was private school, super expensive, didn't get a scholarship. so UH just felt like the choice you know because they you know they had a program that I liked. Um, Houston seemed like a, a cool city, and I had family close by. But on top of that, they gave me money too. Um, and in terms of pursuing business, you know, it was really, I guess, I want to say it was divine like intervention in a lot of ways. Cause I, in high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to pursue. I've always been creative, like, since I was. Since I could hold a pencil, like I've always liked to sketch and draw and and paint. And that was the first career that I kind of told folks that I wanted to, you know, to do. I I want to be an artist. And then I got older and reality set in and I began to shift my thinking about like survival and just being able to take care of myself and my livelihood. So then being an artist didn't feel as like attainable in that sense. And throughout high school, I I would always hear, like, doctor or lawyer, doctor or lawyer. And neither of those career paths resonated with me. Um, And so I was still exploring, you know, and I actually took this class in high school, and it was an entrepreneurship class. And that's when I began to learn about some of the concepts of business and, you know, what it means to start a business, like, what's the strategy behind that, and kind of you know, creating your own wealth and and uh, really your own life, you know, from from something that you're passionate about and something that's yours. And so we had like business plan pitch competitions where we would compete with other students in the city. And so that really like starts to just like build my confidence um, in that space. And you know, entrepreneurship began to feel like something that was uh, a more appropriate career path for me. But I. I started with marketing first because I saw that as like, this is a space in business where there's still room for creativity. So I could like bring the artist in me into that space, and and so yeah, yeah. When I was going to college, I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna do accounting. I'm not gonna do finance. Like that's too much numbers. But marketing feels like a good fit, and it's still you know in that in that business bubble.
0: And when you finished college, so you you went into the corporate world. How mm. did you? How did you enter, and what do you what kind of work did you do?
1: Yeah, so um I actually had the opportunity to um, get involved with this organization called inroads, and so inroads is um, a national organization. They basically help students from underprivileged backgrounds, students of color, all throughout high school and up uh, to get access to corporate spaces and to give them the tools that they need to thrive in those spaces, so they do like you know, career coaching, they do resume review, they do, um, they help you with interviewing. And and so they have a variety of corporate partners that they work with. And so during my junior year of undergrad, uh, going into my, you know, that summer, I had the opportunity to have an internship with Colgate. And I was super excited for it. Um, you know, I grew up using Colgate. And so I, I was happy to have this opportunity to work you know, with this really big company and it was a, it was in sales. And at the time I was more focused on getting into a marketing role, but I saw that as like my entry point, you know, into, into the organization and I found that sales, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Like it, you know, a lot of it was analytical. It was looking at data um, and it was managing the relationships with the retailers that sell our products. So it wasn't like we weren't picking up the phone and asking people to buy, buy toothpaste, Um, But it was more, you know, calling on Walgreens and understanding, like, you know, what price should we be setting our products at, you know, or or how are you trying to grow your category for this upcoming year? Um, And so I was able to convert from that internship. They extended an offer for a full-time position when I graduated from undergrad, and that brought me back to Chicago for a year. Um, And then from there, I the second part of the program that I was in took me to their headquarters in New York City. And that's when I got to experience living in New York, uh, which I was really excited about. Um, and that's when I got into marketing as well, because marketing, all the marketing function for the company sat in New York City. And so um, that was a really, you know, I credit En-ROADS with that opportunity because I felt like the entire reason why I was on Colgate's radar was because Colgate was working with en and even beyond that, just the preparation they gave me, you know, just helping with my resume. Cause a lot, of, like a lot of these resources were available to me, like at my school, but I feel like Enrose offered me a more individualized support. And they also, they were offering the support with the context of like, okay, you're navigating this space as a person of color or a person that has like these identities that could, you know, present difficulties for you in these spaces. And that was really helpful. I think that also helped with the imposter syndrome as well, because I was surrounded. Like I had like a cohort of other students who looked just like me or had similar identity identities that I did. And, you know, there was a sense of community in that. And we were very supportive of each other as we were, you know, recruiting and trying to get opportunities with companies. Like we were share resources. And so that was like a really, um, That was like a really important part of like my journey because there were times during undergrad that I felt isolated, you know, in my efforts of like getting into these spaces. So En-ROADS gave me a sense of community and they also just gave me like like tangible um, tools to use like as I was getting into the corporate space.
0: Can you explain a little bit for our listeners what imposter syndrome is, and how did is that something you're still grappling with, and how did you kind of deal with it when you were working at Colgate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, imposter syndrome is is basically a it's a level of insecurity or self doubt that a person might feel. Um, when they are working in a, a larger organization or a, a bigger space, but they're they're very aware either it could be identity related, like you know, if if you are a woman working around all males and just feeling like, oh, I, I don't know if I really belong here, it could be tied to race, it could be tied to sexuality, um, or it could be just tied to you being new in a space and you know, the other people around you have more experience, more tenure. But it really is a psychological um, struggle that a lot of people, especially people of color or people with, you know, underprotected identities experience um, in the corporate space and academia. Um, The imposter element is like, oh, like I I, I slipped through the cracks and I've like gotten myself into this space. But like, do I really belong? Like, did I, you know, did I sneak in? And like, are people going to realize like oh like he doesn't belong here like he you know he's just with the diversity program like they brought him in through through inroads so like yeah they just they just want to increase their black numbers like you know it, it's it it could be very uh it could impact your confidence for sure and i think early in career i felt a lot of pressure to always say the right thing or just I would overthink my questions, like, because I didn't want to come off as, like, someone who didn't know, right? But as I got older, I realized that, like, you know, when you're new to a job or, you know, whatever, like, a project, it's okay to have questions. That actually signals to people that you are seeking to understand. And, you know, you don't want to come off as a know-it-all or come off as a person that, like, never has any questions. Like, you really want to maximize that opportunity that you have. Usually when you start a new job, you have, like, a good 90 days to just literally be stupid right like ask the dumb questions even though i don't believe i don't believe in dumb questions but like you know that that's your space to like truly be a student and i think imposter syndrome is like a lifelong battle i think it gets better with time but you know as you grow as an individual you're naturally gonna be faced with new opportunities and new challenges and so that will present you know additional Struggles with with just like feeling like you belong in that particular space. Does that make sense?
0: What did you do to get over that? Did you just become more comfortable? And what kind of advice would you give people to deal with imposter syndrome?
1: I would say one of the biggest things is finding community um, and realizing that. Although this experience feels very individual, like you will realize that like a lot of your peers are experiencing the same struggles with it. Um, you know, I think for me, I I I had to like allow myself to accept my wins, you know, and 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 look at it as like out of all these people that applied to this position, like I got selected. So clearly the company thought that, you know, I had something valuable to bring to the table. Um, and that doesn't mean that I have to show up to that table perfectly or like knowing everything, especially being like, so like early in career. So, but community allowed me to, to realize that, you know, cause at the time I really didn't have the vocabulary of like, this is imposter syndrome. I just thought that I didn't belong. You know, like I just thought that yeah, like I, I slipped through the cracks and I got lucky and like now I'm panicking because I have to continuously signal to everybody around me that I belong here. And now looking back, I'm able to say like that was imposter syndrome. But I think during that time, finding community was so impactful for me because it it helped me realize that this was not just something that I was experiencing. I knew it was going to be difficult for like black people in the corporate space in general, just based off of like conversations that I had, stuff that I read, like all these things, but it's still, it felt like, like my anxiety made it feel more personal, more individual. And so now I'm able to like, even like within my MBA class, like there's you know certain students where I could just confine them and be like, You know we could we could talk about those those hurdles and it it makes it feel less threatening because you realize that you know a lot of people are dealing with that in some degree and um i'm a firm believer too that like a lot of people are just winging it you know like people might seem like they're super confident or they're they're you know they're very advanced in their knowledge but Working in corporate America, even for five years, has shown me that there are a lot of people who move up the ladder that they are just really good at faking it, you know, and and that, I think that's part of, you know, that's part of the game. It's just, you know, being able to fake it till you make it, um, but be a sponge and, like, allow yourself to learn along the way. But, yeah, imposter syndrome, I think it's something that it's like a lifelong, it's like a lifelong thing.
0: What was the biggest challenge for you in the corporate environment? If you were to give somebody advice about how to be successful in the corporate environment, like what are some of the things that you should really be careful of in terms of mistake wise, uh, or, or if you had to give someone advice about like, what are some things that someone should be ready for?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that I would tell someone that, they are allowed to be a human being in that space. And what I mean by that is that like, you know, I kind of touching on what I was saying earlier, Like I felt pressure to be perfect or to like know everything or to like, if I did not know something, at least, you know, pretend like I did. But I would urge people, especially early in career to allow themselves to be human. Um, that meaning showing vulnerability I think the unfortunate thing is that, you know, it, it's not always easy for people of color, especially people who are carrying certain stereotypes against them to show vulnerability in those spaces, but being selective in who you are vulnerable with could benefit you a lot. Like if you have a mentor, an organization who's like older, who navigates the world similarly to you that, that you do, like you can lean on them for support. And I had that, like I had someone at Colgate, he was a director, he was a Black male. He would give me like the, the, you know, I was I was getting like the onboarding and just like, you know, learning about the company, but he would give me like another layer of, of his experience as a Black man navigating that space. And that validated a lot of the experiences that I was having. And it also just let me know that I wasn't in that alone. And, you know, he had spent, years of his career at this company so he was able to offer me um great advice or just like how to navigate certain things key example is um there was a change in um uh, i don't want to say uniforms but the dress code like for the company at a certain point like we moved from like a more formal dress code to a laxed one where you, you know you could wear like a button up and slacks instead of like a suit jacket and like you know the whole get up and You know, I remember like I was pinging him about it, saying, like, oh, like this is, you know, this is really cool. Like, I'm so glad that we don't have to come in like full suit anymore. Um, Well, we never had to come in full suit, but like jacket or like, you know, button up. Like, it was just like very dressed up. And he was just like, yeah, but like, you know, be careful, you know, as a black man, because you, you, people are already having preconceived notions about you. And it was, you know, looking back on that advice, I definitely see what he meant by that, because whether I could come in and be the most qualified person ever, but if people see black skin and they assume like, "Mm, he's a diversity hire or, oh, he like, he's probably going to have an anger issue. He's probably not, he's probably not like cool to work with. Like he's probably angry or emotional, whatever, like whatever the preconceived notion is, you know, the way that you dress unfortunately i mean it's a psychological thing like people you know they see certain things and they attribute it to um a character trait you know and that unfortunately ties into race and how we perceive each other and so i having that conversation with him kind of helped me level set and see, like okay like this is great you know we could dress more freely now but i still have to be mindful of you know the concepts or the stereotypes or the preconceived notions that are in the room before I even get to it, you know, and I think you ultimately have to pick, you know, as you get older in your career and you, and you learn the lay of the land, you, you, you get to pick your battles, right. And so you, you get to decide when am I going to conform to the status quo and kind of just, you know, keep my head down and, and, and not cause any riffraff, but you also get to, be a positive disruptor when you feel like it could benefit you and and your mental health or benefit people who are coming into the organization after you. Um, and so I think that's a muscle that you kind of train and you get a better sense of discernment as you grow in your career of like picking your battles and and knowing when to raise your hand and say like, wait a minute, um, actually, you know, that's, that's offensive or, you know, that probably shouldn't be said. Or whatever the case may be, but I do think earlier on, like when I was just getting started, I, that was the last thing that I was trying to do because I, I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to ruin any chance that I had of of advancing in my career. That was like a real fear of mine because I already felt lucky, you know, being there in the first place. So I didn't want to do anything to threaten that. Um, but yeah, as you get older and you get more experience, like the confidence expands and knowing when to pick your battles, I would say, is is important.
0: When did you decide that you wanted to get an MBA? Because you moved on from the corporate world. What was that transition like for you?
1: Yeah, um, you know, pandemic, like like most people, you had a lot of time to think about the trajectory of your life. And um, the program that I was in with Colgate, for like the it was a two-year program and we got to get a year of experience in marketing but when the program ended we went into like a you know a full-time position in sales or you know and i went into a retail a retail marketing role but it was a little bit different than like brand marketing and i was trying to like continue my my career path on the marketing track but um the way the company was, was structured like they they wanted folks to have mbas um when they when they come into marketing. And so um, that was pushback that I received whenever I would try to like, kind of pivot back into marketing. And I learned about consortium, which is another program that's uh, similar in a lot of ways to inroads. Uh, so consortium is a fellowship for uh, MBA students of color who are applying for their MBA. And you could basically apply to some of the top MBA programs through the consortium. And if you get selected for the fellowship, you could potentially get um, uh, your tuition paid for, or you know, full tuition or partial tuition. And so I began to start looking at, you know, different programs, what they offered. I had this interest in filmmaking that I felt like wasn't really explored. Um, I got when I was in New York, I got to take some screenwriting classes, and I took a class. Um, uh yeah it was a spring class, class it was also like a documentary class and that was the beginning of me like be- like starting to explore that space but i wanted to understand the business of entertainment too because i knew like my idea for a script or a tv show could be amazing but if i didn't know how to sell it or i didn't know how to like steer those conversations with the decision makers then it most likely wasn't gonna uh come to life and so i began to look at a, a It programs through that lens and USC, they have an amazing um, obviously their film school is one of the best, but their business school like Marshall also has uh, programming in tandem with the film school. And so my top three schools were uh, don't tell USC, but it was like USC, UCLA and then NYU. Um, So I was torn between staying in New York for some more time or moving to L.A. Um, but things worked out where I got the fellowship to go to USC. And for me, going back for my MBA was also an opportunity for me to take a few steps back from corporate America and and really just give myself two years to investigate like what I actually wanted out of life. Um, I feel like a lot of my early 20s was me following a path that was, I don't want to say prescribed to me, but I, a lot of the things that I was doing or aiming for or reaching for, it it was like to make my parents proud, or it was, you know, because I felt like it was what I should be doing based on what other people um, were maybe expecting of me. And so MBA, I wanted to be really intentional about how I approached MBA, because even in that space, it's really easy to get caught up in you know what other folks are, are are doing with the program and like what their goals are. Like a lot of people wanted to do consulting, for example, and I knew I was just like, eh, consulting is not for me. You know, like when I hear consulting, I hear like a lack of work life balance. I hear like great money, great pay, which is like why a lot of people pursue it, but that comes at a cost. And you know that that like all the traveling and just like the long hours it wears on you after a while. And I was at that point in my career, I was very. Adamant about work-life balance and kind of making space for my mental well-being so um, yeah MBA for me too was it was um, it was an opportunity for me to kind of remedy. My relationship to academia that I was talking about earlier like that like just feeling overwhelmed and stressed in undergrad and just feeling like it was so like. Like the stakes were so high, like if I didn't get this A or didn't get this GPA, like everything was just gonna fall apart or my dreams were never gonna come true. Like it was less of that and more of like how do I make this experience make the most sense for me and like my journey? And it was a beautiful, like I, you know, I really am proud of the way that I tackled that because there were times where I did feel that pressure, you know, because we you know we're all chattering amongst each other, like, oh, like, you know, like. Where are you trying to work this summer? Like, where are you recruiting? Like all these conversations are just like nonstop. And after a certain point, you can really feel like threatened and like what you've chosen for yourself. But, you know, I, I was very clear on what I wanted. That's when I started to pursue modeling. So there were times where, you know, I pulled back from MBA activities because I was pursuing modeling and I was able to make both of them work, but you know, like some people in my program might feel pressure to go to every event, you know, every recruiting event, every like coffee chat, because they want to get as much exposure, but they also want to like show their face as often as they can. So they're more memorable. Um, I think I was a little bit more strategic in especially because I already knew what I wanted to do. Like I, I I was very strategic with like the events that I went to and that cleared up more of my schedule to, you know, focus on the other interests I have. Because like, as you said earlier, I have a million things going on and like, you know, even though MBA is like a very intense program and it demands a lot of you, like I still had other things that I had to give energy to too. So um, yeah, I mean, MBA, like it started with me wanting to, just take a step back honestly and 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 take a break from working to learn about business, yes, and, and entertainment business for sure, but also just learning about myself and like what I wanted, you know, um, and yeah, I, it was it was a great two years. like I really I'm glad that I don't know if the timing was right, but you know, the experience itself, like I, I definitely wouldn't take that back.
0: So, given that you you were you were in the business school at the same time as you were modeling, modeling is like one of the most competitive uh professions to enter, and you're a successful model. What kind of pressure did you feel as a model? Was it difficult to balance those two things
1: <sighs> yeah, um yeah, you know, there. You know, I I I started modeling with the knowledge that it wasn't going to be easy, or you know, and and it was harder again as a as a person of color to get opportunities to get booked for stuff. You know, we would like we've seen brief periods where like diversity has been like you know the focal point, whether it's performative or real. But there there have been like ups and downs with it, and we've seen that so much um, and. In the LA market, for example, it's very commercial, um, very like lifestyle and fitness, and so you know, knowing that and trying to like get into modeling here versus like in New York City, um, there are different approaches which that you have to take with like just trying to build your portfolio. So, um, for me, I think a lot of it was. I was aware of my body and aware of it was a combination of like my skin, like my face, like trying to make sure I had no breakouts, but also, you know, my fitness, like trying to, you know, keep my body up to par tightness and, you know, just having um, that muscular physique, which is difficult when you're stressed out with finals and NBA and all you want to do is, you know, eat donuts or, you know, like treat yourself to, god knows what (laughs) um and i i I found myself like being kind of militant about like what i would eat sometimes i think the hardest thing though was getting comfortable with the rejection you know um you're gonna get a lot of no's in modeling and it builds character in a sense of like, you know, you keep getting all those nose you start to get thicker skin and get used to it. And like, I guess take it less personally, but it is something that no matter what, it's gonna wear on you in some way, like it, it like eventually. Um, but kind of, I also learned like not to get super attached to like a particular opportunity. Like if there was like this casting for, you know, a show or a brand that I really wanted to work with, like I would try not to get too emotionally attached to it prematurely because, you know, it, there's no guarantees. Um, you know, the good thing is I, I, I was able to work with a good agent out here. Um, I got signed to state and, uh, I think that was the beginning of 2022 and, um, my agent there was really good. Like he, he, I could tell he was being thoughtful and intentional with like my portfolio and just trying to get me more development. And he was really like putting me out there. So I've had some, you know, I've had some really fun and interesting and cool experiences through modeling. There was also like a little bit of an entrepreneurial element there too, because you know, if you're using like a backstage, for example, or a swipe cast, like you are managing yourself and you're pitching yourself to these brands. And so there's been a lot of that for me too. Um, and so I get to be creative in the way that I like try to pitch myself to them. And, you know, I remember one casting for, there's this brand called Fuma on, um, and I'm sure like, you'll see them all over Instagram. They sell like the, the bedding, like the the bedroom sets, like they have dressers, they have, you know, headboards, they have beds, uh, they have clothes too. But, you know, part of the casting was I had to submit a video of me just simply making my bed and I tried to make it as like you know, creative and playful, but like natural as prop as possible. And I got to play around with like my filmmaking skills. And so there was like a lot of overlap too. And that was the cool thing about modeling is that I feel like it, it, um, it demanded a lot of my other skill sets, you know, to really set myself apart. And I booked that job. Right. And that was, you know, that was a very fun job uh, to work on. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was worried about how I was going to balance modeling with full-time MBA program especially because modeling like it's like a lot of times you'll get a yes like a final yes the day before the actual shoot or the day before the the fashion show you know you might be on a short list um which means that you know they've selected five models that they really like and they're trying to like hold them but you might not get that final yes until literally <laughs> t- less than 24 hours before and so you know it that pair with like an mba program that's a little bit more structured and like rigid um i was worried about like how i was going to make that work but honestly like i could i could say like there was and i don't know if it was just luck but like i really don't think there was a time where one conflicted with the other in a way that wasn't manageable or in a way that like cuz i i kind of got to control you know my schedule with modeling like you know i knew my availability i knew the days that i had classes so there were certain opportunities that I wouldn't even apply to because I knew like, like oh, they, they're going to need me for, you know, three days in a row. Like, I don't know if that's going to you know, work out because that's going to be around finals time or that's around like, you know, whatever. So I think there was intentionality on my end with balancing it, but it really wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And I'm, I'm really glad that I chose to like go for it because I felt like this would be the time to do it because, you know, your school schedule was a little bit more flexible.
0: Yeah, and I guess that's a it's a perfect way for me to segue because you're always you're super super positive, and one of the reasons I wanted you on, on the podcast you have a great energy, and you're very very positive. And um, what made you start? Because um, you're the founder of Spirit Gallery, and we know that you're doing the modeling still. Does when you started Spirit Gallery, what were you thinking?
1: Yeah, um, you know, Spirit Gallery for me was, you know, I really as I got closer to finishing my MBA, I really began to explore what entrepreneurship could look like for me. Um, I didn't expect to pursue entrepreneurship this early in the game, but just based on like how the job market has been and 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 like what I learned throughout my experience, I really felt like, you know, this time period might be a good time to pursue it. And I have a passion for diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, you know, I'm I'm sure you've like gotten that vibe throughout this whole interview so thus far, and like, it's been a part of my professional work even when it wasn't like a formal part of my role. Like, I just I help like I've I've helped Colgate with diversity recruiting. Um, I've I've helped them build relationship or maintain the relationship with Inroads, um, and then also like. During the pandemic, like shortly after George Floyd, you know, I was leading sessions uh, where we would have conversations about DEI-related topics that you know weren't talked about as often or really with that much of a platform before. And it's it's work that I think is very important. And even though companies pick and choose when they want to prioritize it, or like you know, it has its periods of of popularity or priority. Um, I think that there should be like a you know, a consistent through line of of effort and strategy behind that. And I wanted to, you know, I I'm I was familiar with the fact that there is a lot of DEI content out there that is teaching people the basics of like, what is DEI? What are microaggressions? What's unconscious bias? And that content, you know, has, there's a need for it and it has its place. I think there's a lot of that content out there. However, we don't see a lot of content that's actually designed to support the diverse populations within that org. And so I wanted to create a company that was, um, kind of like a contemporary kind of like a refreshed approach to providing e-learning resources. Um, for oppressed groups um, or underrepresented groups like within these larger organizations to help them actually acclimate and feel more connected to the organization. And so we have modules that are, you know, for example, um, how to set boundaries in the workplace or navigating work-life balance or um, how to approach 360 feedback with your manager. Um, A lot of these topics for the courses were things that like I myself struggled with, or like I, you know, I like there were hurdles for me early in career. Um, or they were hurdles from my colleagues or my peers that you know they've confided in me about. But I wanted I wanted the courses to be structured ultimately to support them and for the courses to be informed by their experiences too. And so you know when a company purchases the uh, licenses to the course material, uh, once their employees take those courses, like they get that information, like they get that learning, but they also have opportunity at the end of the course to evaluate their experience as it relates to that topic in the organization. So for example, if it's, you know, about setting boundaries in the workplace, at the end of that module, they'll they'll say like, you know, does your company provide you, do you feel like your company provides you ample uh, room to set boundaries or like what has been your experience setting boundaries with management um and that will then allow the HR team like that data could get sent and it's anonymized so like their their name won't be attached to it so that protects them from like retaliation or whatever so it's really like an accountability um tool too because the the organization can then take that data and like have a better assessment of like how their diversity equity and inclusion strategy is actually being executed so, that, there's a value add there for yes, the diverse populations, but also the organization too, specifically like people like people operations, HR, um, as they are carrying out their DEI objectives, and that's kind of like a gut check to make sure that they're actually tracking, you know, towards uh, what they claim to be. Um, and so, for me, like I, that is work that I can remain passionate about. That is work that. It makes me feel like I'm connected to something, you know, bigger than myself and widening the door that has been opened. Um, And I really do see this opportunity for me to just, like, continue to incorporate my creativity and incorporate the other interests that I have, like, you know, from a filmmaking perspective, from a writing perspective. Um, And so, yeah, like, I, I see, like, Spirit Gallery becoming... You know, not, not just an ed tech company that provides e-learning material, but, you know, we might have, you know, a podcast one day. We might have, you know, uh, fireside chats with just, like, thought leaders in the industry um, or in the DEI space. Uh, we might have a bigger presence at conferences. Um, so there, there really is, like, my goal for Spear Gallery is for us to, you know, build out with, you know, our first line of customers and clients with the e-learning courses but beyond that you know i want to have like a wider network of of impact in the in the dei space in the future
0: you know for a lot of people when you see dei people for many people it conjures these negative images Mm -hmm. what do you say to people when you're trying to explain to them that dei is it doesn't need to be looked at that way? What do you say to people regarding that? Because I know that's something that you're probably constantly having to battle. Because the media they provide per, uh, perceptions of it that I don't think are really aligned with reality in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, how do you explain that to people what DEI is and the importance of it?
1: Yeah. You know, that's a really good question and that is something that, you know, I encounter um, and the unfortunate thing is like, you know, a lot of times the DEI um, practice is is reduced to like this like wokeism. you know, like very like, it's like a negative um, interpretation of like some of the um, things that DEI is, is trying to do, right? People will say like, oh, like it, you know, it feels like reverse racism, or it feels like I'm being forced to agree with, you know, things that like I don't, or you know, I and I I think during those conversations when I hear that, because there are there are extreme um, and ineffective, like p- there are people out there who embody those type of DEI principles or, or strategy, whatever. But that is not, you know, by any means the that's like one chunk of like a larger effort and for me i think it's always best to go back to the empathy part you know that's that's one of my that's one of my company values is emphasizing empathy um understanding the experience that a person or a group of people has had and focusing on that um i think you know a lot of times for every, you know, ignorant statement that somebody can make about a group of people or a person, there, there is somebody likely within reach who can offer a personal experience and say, well, like, you know, as a Latinx woman, like actually I've experienced this working at this company and I have colleagues who've confided in me about the same thing, but it, you know, I think it should all like the conversation should always, kind of steer back to well, what are people experiencing and like, how have their lives been affected negatively as a result of some of the things that they're speaking up against? Because it's not about control, you know, like people, a lot of times, you know, people don't want to feel forced, right, to do anything, to make any changes that they don't want to make. But the conversation is more like, how can we make this landscape safe for everybody um how can we make it inclusive for everybody in a way that doesn't threaten your sense of self or like your sense of individuality but there has to be some admission like at a certain point that you know it's not a level playing field right and i think you know there's so much data to back that up what i've learned though is like sometimes you can give people data and you can give people you know uh like, like, legitimate stories from people, like, based on their experiences, a person has to be willing to be open. And so I think that's another, um, that's another take for Spear Gallery that I really am passionate about is, like, helping people become open, or if they're already open, like, to, to stay open. Um, because ultimately, like, seeking to understand the other person's perspective can resolve a lot. You know, and it, it's going to tie back to that, you know, to that empathy. And in MBA, there were a lot of conversations about what that looks like in leadership and why, you know, leading with empathy is important. And that that feels like a more recent development in how leaders are evaluated. I often question even now sometimes too, like, are they really being evaluated on that? Or are we just saying that on paper because it sounds nice? But I do think that some of the most impactful leaders Have a higher EQ, have the ability to, you know, or the desire to like understand the people that they're working with and to support them in those smaller ways that actually are big ways. Um, So yeah, it it always ties back to the people and and you know being an advocate for a more level playing field, being an advocate for less exclusion, less imposter syndrome. less violence you know and that is you know that is that is my vision for spirit gallery
0: yeah yeah, i i love what you're talking about because i think a lot of times uh people get they don't get the right information regarding um the meaning and the importance of dei they they attach on to this notion that does that means we have to treat certain people differently. That means mm-hmm. that people aren't going to be equal and that's really not what it's about. And I'm really appreciative that you are like trying to change that perception and working on really what is the real importance of, of having those discussions. Um, I wanted to also ask you about, cause we only have about 10 minutes left. Um, meditation and yoga. I know that you are uh, you have to talk about a little bit about like how do you use meditation and yoga to balance your life and mm-hmm. to reduce your stress and are those kind of the things that you recommend for people when they have a lot of stress in their life and what kind of things do you recommend people do when they are under stress?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I, I like, I'm, I'm usually. You know, in conversations with people, I'm very, um, I guess I'm positive, I'm optimistic, but I'm also, um, I acknowledge and I leave space for the struggle. I leave space for um, the pain, you know, the, the suffering. Um, I think a lot of times we, we rush ourselves through our healing process or we don't even have one because we're either in survival mode or we feel like our emotions are not valid. Or we feel like the challenges that we're facing, maybe we feel like we deserve them. Whatever the case may be, but yoga—I'm—I'm I'm so glad that I found my way back to yoga because um, I used to practice it a little bit as a kid, but I kind of fell out of it. And you know, during the pandemic, I really wanted to just start doing something again that would bring me a sense of peace and grounding. And like yoga for me is my opportunity every day to check in with myself. You know, I—I usually do it before bed at night. It's my way or my it's my opportunity to carve out an hour to just be. And I usually, you know, I'll have my music, but I, I put my phone away. Um, it's usually like my wind down before bed, because that's usually when my thoughts start racing, because I, I struggle with insomnia sometimes. And so it's really helped with that. It's, it's necessary for me now um, because of all the things that I'm involved in obviously that's stressful, you know, that, that, that demands a lot out of you. Um, But even just the state of the world right now, we have so much visibility to what's wrong in the world more so than ever. You know, we, we have social media. I'm literally scrolling on Twitter and I'm seeing children being mutilated and bombed. And it's, You know, it used to be like you would watch the news and they would like blur that part out, like they would report it, but you you're not actually like seeing it. And like now, you have visibility to that, and it wears on you. Like, yeah, we're becoming desensitized to it in a lot of ways, but I think it still wears on you. Um, The economy, the government, my experience as a you know as a person with intersecting identities existing in this country, like it it just. There's a lot every day that, you know, is coming up for me, and I think a lot of people are struggling with that too, and and wondering what to do with it. And so, for me, yoga—it's more than the movement. You know, it's it's exploring the mind-body connection. Um, it's an opportunity for me to check in with myself and to reconnect with like my northern star. Um, I, in the meditation aspect of it too, it's, it's, um, it's really powerful because I do think that staying motivated, like a lot of it is chemical, you know, a lot of it is um, your internal dialogue. And I've, you know, I could be honest and say like lately I've been feeling the weight of the world. I've been feeling um, like my internal dialogue is leaning more on the negative side. And, but I do think that there's utility in that. I think the meditation allows you to explore what you're fearful about, um, and maybe even find a fearlessness in that, in acceptance. Right? It's like this—you're um, accepting like the nothingness, right? You're just sitting with yourself, and you, you're accepting everything that comes up. And I think it's important during meditation to allow yourself. I the best way that it was like kind of uh, maps for me is like meditation is like you're you're crossing this really big street and like all these cars are like flying by. I mean, they're, you know, they're slowing down enough for you to like, you know, not die, but like, you know, you're, you're trying to get across the street and like the cars are your thoughts that pop up. So some of them are going to be like the Ferraris, like, you know, like, you know, your your dreams, right. Your aspirations or just things that make you feel really good. It could be like older memories. And then you're going to have other stuff, like other cars passing by. they like, really want you to get in. Um, but you don't, you don't have to necessarily get into any of these cars. You could just watch them as they go by, observe them, stay open. And then by the time they're out of your line of vision, there'll be a new car and getting in the car means that you're getting consumed by that thought and that you're accepting it as truth. Um, I've learned that all of my thoughts are not my own and all of my thoughts are not the truth. And I think that's a very powerful, especially, you know, in the state of the world now, like that's. A very powerful mindset to keep and meditation helps me strengthen that muscle meditation is not easy to get into like it it it's kind of like especially if you have adhd like me like me like i think that it definitely takes time to get used to just like sitting and like maintaining that stream of focus but the more that you do it like anything else playing basketball swimming running whatever it's like a muscle that you train and the more you do it the more discoveries you'll make and the more you'll be able to maintain that sense of self and like connection to self so i feel like there's never been a time more in my life where i've needed this practice um just to help me maintain um and, and keep swinging um and everybody that i you know all the people that are close to me i'm always you know raving to them about it and like we're trying to bring them to a yoga class with me or like You know, so it's a very big part of my life. And I think that that is the grounding part of my life. Everything else is like, you know, a project or an activity or an ambition or, you know, a sense of urgency that I have, but yoga and meditation is my, it's my pause.
0: And I like what you said, where I think everybody has to find how to, what's good for them to relax but they have to they have to do it consistently whether mm-hmm. it's meditation whether it's yoga whether it's swimming some outlet for them to be able to um you know get that extra energy or stress out so that they're able to manage their life more effectively so i get to ask you these fun questions here at the end here so cool. favorite favorite music favorite music
1: i've really been into afro beats and a uh, my mappiano is like a South African, uh, kind of like a house uh, sound. I love it. Like, I just – I've been listening to a lot of that lately.
0: Um, favorite guilty pleasure food-wise?
1: Oof, that's an easy one. Um, I would say Sprinkles Cupcake. I, uh, I'm gluten-free. Like, I can't have gluten, but Sprinkles has the best gluten-free cupcake you could imagine. I mean, you can't even tell it's gluten-free in my opinion. Um, I've given them a lot more business that I'm comfortable sharing today, but that is, that is definitely my guilty pleasure.
0: Um, favorite place that you've, you've traveled to in the world.
1: South Africa, hands down South Africa. I, I spent some time, I did a wildlife filmmaking program in South Africa last year. I love nature. I love wildlife, and that was like a really good opportunity for me to just get more exposure to wildlife. And I, I just have such fond memories about that trip.
0: And what do you want to be remembered for? You know.
1: I want to, I want to be, I I keep the word empathy keeps coming back to me. I want to be remembered for my ability to practice empathy. Um, I know I won't always get it right. And I know it's a continuous effort, but I do think that that is really one of the fabrics that holds us as people together is just being able to simply, give a person the space to show up as they are and, and understand like what their perspective is. And that can eliminate so much conflict, I feel. Um, so yeah, I want to be remembered for my empathy.
0: Well, if somebody wants to get a hold of you and you're about your company and what you do, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you?
1: Yeah. Um, if you're, if you need like di. Uh, consulting services, or you, you're looking to uh, potentially get some e learning material for your business, uh, it's spiritgallery.net. Um, and I'm also available on Instagram. You can reach out to me on Instagram too. Um, my at there is uh, underscore the red ghost. So it's like T H E, the red ghost. And then there's an underscore in front of that. Um, and yeah, like I, I would love, like I'm always looking to expand my network and get connected with people and, and weave them into my journey, weave myself into theirs. So yeah, please don't hesitate.
0: Well, thank you so much, Red. I appreciate you so much. We're going to have to get you on another time. You were a great interview. I learned a lot today. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time, keep learning, keep working hard. Take care.
1: Nice. Thank you.